The following sermon audio is from The Source Church in Plainfield, Illinois. More information about The Source Church can be found at www.thesourcechurch.life. Today's scripture reading is from Exodus chapter 24. If you wouldn't mind, please stand with me as we read God's word. Exodus chapter 24. Then he said to Moses, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and seventy of the elders of Israel, and worship from afar. Moses alone shall come near to the Lord, but the others shall not come near, and the people shall not come with him. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules, and all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words that the Lord has spoken we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and twelve pillars, according to the twelve tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins, and half of the blood he threw against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken we will do, and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel went up, and they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God and ate and drank. The Lord said to Moses, Come up to me on the mountain and wait there, that I may give you the tablets of stone, with the law and the commandment which I have written for their instruction. So Moses rose with his assistant Joshua, and Moses went up into the mountain of God. And he said to the elders, Wait here for us until we return to you. And behold, Aaron and Hur are with you. Whoever has a dispute, let him go to them. Then Moses went up on the mountain, and the cloud covered the mountain. The glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day, he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain, and Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. We thank God for his holy word. You can be seated. Lord, my prayer for us this morning is that you would give us an overwhelming sense of your goodness. And we pray that you would show us more clearly the riches that are ours in this new covenant in the person of Jesus Christ. And Lord, we ask that you would help us to see your mercy fully and to see ourselves rightly and to see the big picture of what you're doing. And we pray that that would change our lives. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. We've titled this series, The God Who Saves, The God Who Speaks, 
the God who stays. And since chapter 18, we've really been in that section of the God who speaks, and we've been unpacking the gift of his law. Well, today we're going to see the end of that section as the people receive the law formally, and then we're going to see the start of the section that highlights the God who stays. We serve a God who stays with his people, and that is very good news. He overcomes every obstacle to make that happen, and he brings us closer to the end promise. He's going to reverse the fall. He's going to lead us to something better than Eden, where God and people dwell together. Before we get into the text, let's just review the situation a bit. Ancient Israel had a problem. On the one hand, they had a lot of good going for them, right? They, among all the earth's peoples, had the knowledge of the one true God who had created it all. And they carried the story of his revelation all the way from Adam to Noah to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. And then by God's faithfulness through Joseph, they were preserved as a people. And they were brought into a land where they could multiply for centuries. And then by God's work through Moses, they had plundered their former oppressors and they were headed now into a bright new future. But on the other hand, they had a problem. This God was holy, and they were not. And so as they approach his presence at Mount Sinai, the sense of celebration gradually gives way to a sense of terror. They saw a blazing fire shrouded in smoke like a kiln. They felt the ground shake. They heard the sound of a trumpet growing louder and louder. And in chapter 20, verse 19, they had said, Do not let God speak to us, lest we die. And we here today, naturally, have the same problem. We may acknowledge the existence of God. We know his deeds have been preserved for us in our own language. We can read about them. We enjoy the fruits of how his values have shaped our Western culture. We'd like to think that this God is for us, that he would do good things for us. On the other hand, there's a glaring issue. This God is holy, and we are not. And even when God has come down, there's still a barrier of inapproachability between us and him. And if we don't see clearly how that gulf is bridged, or if we take that bridge for granted, then we're playing with fire. So this passage shows us the pattern for how God can be approached. And we'll see that it's his gift of covenant that makes the impossible possible. First, we'll get our heads around the events of this chapter, and we're going to see an amazing invitation. And then we're going to think about what that means for us in Jesus Christ, through whom we receive an even better invitation. And then finally, we're going to think about what needs to and what really can change in us as a result, so that this isn't a neglected invitation. At the start of chapter 4, this invitation is offered, an unbelievable invitation. Representatives of the people are called to come up to the Lord to worship. Do you remember how in chapter 19 there were limits put around the mountain so that not a person, not even an animal could accidentally wander up and perish? Well now that barrier is going to be breached. 74 persons are invited to come past it into the presence of the Lord. And God's prophet Moses of course leads that group. And Aaron is with them. He's designated as the future high priest. And that's why his two oldest sons, Nadab and Abihu, are also part of the party. And there are 70 elders of Israel, representatives of the people who can go past the barrier to approach the living God at a distance. 
Now, this invitation doesn't reflect just an exception. Like, okay, there's this, this um, inapproachability to God, but we're just going to ignore that now because it's a random exception. No, that's not how it works. If married people or are separated, or if two countries are separated in a war, why would they get together? They wouldn't unless it was part of a process of seeking reunification. You do it because it's part of seeking reunification. And that's what's going on here. Yahweh intends to be their God. He wants them to be his people. And so he invites them to start this covenant negotiation. And before they can fully answer this call to come up the mountain, we read in verse 3 that Moses came and he told the people all the words that the Lord had spoken. Notice that they need to encounter his word before they can even really understand his invitation. They need to know his character. They need to know about his righteous rule before they can respond in faith to any of his promises. Now, what words were read to them? What words did Moses read? In verse 7, it's called the Book of the Covenant. And it seems to include the Ten Commandments and also all those clarifying principles or laws that we've been looking at over the past few weeks. So really everything from chapter 20, verse 22, through the end of chapter 23, that material. And it showed the people, if you remember, it showed the people what holiness looked like. It showed them that holiness means loving God above all else and loving others as yourself. And that, ha- that usually plays out in ways that are beyond what we might have expected on our own. Moses wrote down those words that he'd received from the Lord. This was likely the first portion of scripture that was ever written down. Isn't that crazy? This book of the covenant that Moses was reading to these people, that was likely the first part of scripture. And then this other narrative section of Exodus and the rest of the Pentateuch came around that. But that's the first thing. And from this moment on, the people of God would always be a people centered on the written word. Now, when the people then answered in verse 3 with one voice, they say, all the words that the Lord has spoken we will do, then Moses knows for sure that they're serious, and so he knows that he can move forward with this covenant initiation. That's what we're going to see here is the, the start of a covenant, a binding agreement, a formalization of a relationship. And in the ancient world, people would start covenants with really two components. There would be a ceremony where promises are exchanged, and then there'd be a meal to solidify it all. And that's the, that's the basic form of covenant, which, by the way, is exactly how we still do marriage, right? When we make marriage covenants, we have a, a sacred ceremony in which promises are exchanged, and then we share a meal. And off, often there's tokens of the promises as well, right? You've got the, mar- the, the rings for marriage, and we see tokens here. Like in verse 4, Moses wrote down all these words of the Lord. So the book itself, the book of the covenant, is a token of the covenant. It's kind of like a marriage certificate. Or in the ancient world, uh, you could think of it this way. It was common for kings, when they were forming an agreement, a treaty with vassal states. So, um, okay, I'm not going to... Um, scorch your ground if you submit to me in this and this way, then the king would give them an authoritative text detailing what was expected of them, and the people would have to agree to that. And that's somewhat coloring what's going on here too. So they have this document, the Book of the Covenant, that's a token of the covenant that's, that's happening. But there's also another token. We read that Moses rose early in the morning, and he built an altar at the foot of the mountain. 
and 12 pillars, according to the 12 tribes of Israel. So this altar and pillars, they really serve to set it in stone, so to speak. They are a visible picture of the relationship that's, that's being formed here with God's altar in the middle and the 12 tribes arranged around it, belonging there, immovable. So we've had God's promises given in a book. We've had the people's promises verbally indicated, an exchange of promises in a ceremony. There are tokens of the bond. So now we're ready for the meal, right? Wrong. That would be the case if this was a joining of equals. But this is a joining of the unholy to the holy. Sometimes two things just fundamentally don't fit together. Imagine if representatives from North Korea came over and they're like, hey, we want to be with you guys from now on. We'll be the 51st state. How about it? We would say, no way. Not until there is a fundamental change in who you are because we're incompatible. North Korea is going to have to depose your leaders, have some sort of Nuremberg trials equivalent. You're going to have to correct all the starvation and the corrupt education and the human rights abuses. And in a sense, North Korea would need to be cleansed of its evils. The people would have to start to think like free people before they could be joined to a free country. Otherwise, what would it do? It would make us complicit in those crimes against humanity. It would make us, in a sense, unfree. And even more so, to be joined to a holy God, a people must be made holy. But how? How could a sinful people be made holy? That's a really big question. It's going to take the whole Bible to answer. But the sinner would need to have the evil somehow purged from them, and that's a process that in its fullness would require a passing through death. But here in Exodus, we see a symbolic proxy is used, and that's the death of a sacrificial animal. The act of sacrifice is a way that God prescribed for his ancient people to show that you understand what's going on here. You understand that your sin has a cost. You understand that sin leads to death, and you understand that rightfully, it shouldn't be that innocent animal up there it should be you on the altar. And so we see that not only the, the promises of the book were needed, but also the blood of the sacrifice. Verse 5 says, And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. Now if you want peace with a holy God, then he needs to see the blood of sacrifice, and you need to recognize the blood of sacrifice. The blood here, it actually doesn't represent death. It represents life. The blood represents the innocent life. And we read that Moses took half of the blood and he put it in basins, and half of the blood he threw against the altar. So an innocent life is essentially being placed on the altar between Yahweh and his people. So where before he would only have seen corruption, now he sees purity because of the blood. But how will the people recognize the blood? How will they take in its full message? How would it not just seem to them like a senseless magic ceremony? Well, the book is brought back in. The book that was read before. With, with half the blood still sitting in the bowls, Moses took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, now for a second time, 
all that the Lord has spoken we will do, and we will be obedient. So the book has helped them to see their need of the blood. And then Moses took the blood, and he threw it on the people. Threw the blood on the people. And he said, behold the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with these words. Can you imagine having that animal blood just splattered on on your faces and chests? It's a vivid memory, and when you get past the grossness of it all, um, it would probably lead to some deep thoughts, like, wow, that was the day when we were sprinkled with the blood of a substitute. That was the day when we were marked by the life substance of another. Now, after the book and the blood, then it was time for the bread. God had set them apart as his people. He'd required that they live according to his covenant guidelines, and he'd accepted them on the basis of the atonement sacrifice. So now all that was left was for Israel's representatives to go up and seal the covenant with a meal. And in verse 10, we read that they did go up, and they saw the God of Israel. What a statement. They saw God. This is the climax of the whole passage. This is the goal to which everything else leads. This is the ultimate good if you're not struck dead, which they weren't. The text points out how apart from covenant they should have been. But verse 11, and he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God and ate and drank. But wait a minute. Doesn't John chapter 1 say No one has ever seen God. And why, when Moses, later in chapter 33, he asks God, please show me your glory, why does God say, I will make all my goodness pass before you, but you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live? If that's the case, then what's happening here in chapter 24? Well, whenever there are visions of God in Scripture, it seems that God is so transcendent, so holy, that humans, even the people of God, even his specially picked prophets, can only see a partial representation of him. And here in this passage, that's all we see, right? It's described as under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. You can see their perception is kind of grasping for adequate terms to even describe what they're beholding. It seems to involve some sort of stunning alternate space and then a being of whom they can only really grasp the lowest part. And in Isaiah chapter 6, we see something similar there. The prophet says, He saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. So we're still at the foot level with the train of the robe filling the temple. Did Isaiah see anything above that? We we don't really know. If he did, he didn't feel at liberty to discuss it. But he does go on to speak about smoke and how the thresholds are shaking and how six-winged angels are circling above, chanting, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And this is enough for Isaiah to cry out, Woe is me! I'm lost, for I'm a man of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And then when Ezekiel saw the Lord, it's similarly incompletely described, kind of weird and terrifying, There's a sapphire-like expanse, similar to Exodus 24. There are what appear to be wheels within wheels that look like gleaming metal. 
There are living creatures darting to and fro like the appearance of a flash of lightning. And over all that, there's a sound of many roaring waters. And then Ezekiel looks and he sees the appearance of a human likeness. But it's like fire encased all around mixed with rainbows. And Ezekiel falls on his face. So all to say, these elders of Israel did see the Lord in some limited way. Surely enough to stun them with beauty and terrify them with the sheer otherliness of such a God. It was an invitation like no other. And they ate and they drank and they expressed friendship with God and they received acceptance from God. Where did the food come from? What did it taste like? There's a lot that we just don't know. But what we do know is that God gave this gift of covenant so that the people could see him and enjoy him. But not always, at least not yet. They had to go back down the mountain. They had to go back to their normal lives. Still, the covenant was in place. Now they knew God meant to stay with them somehow, in some way, but other provisions would have to be made first. And in verses 12 through 14, we learn that Moses is going back up the mountain by himself in order to get tablets of the covenant from the Lord. So this is another token of the covenant. It's going to go in the Ark of the Covenant. Um, But even more than that, in verses 15 to 18, we get hints that a much bigger process is starting. And it's really subtle. But Moses is called up on the mountain. He's made to wait six days maybe paralleling the six days of creation. And then he's up on the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights. It's the same time frame of the flood where the earth was washed clean and new. So there's this huge new creation motif that's happening here. And it seems to indicate that with this covenant, God is creating a new humanity. Well, that's a happy ending, right? They saw God, they entered covenant with God, they would forever be a changed people. Everything bad is coming untrue, right? Well, not quite. We quickly see that this covenant on Mount Sinai is not a cure-all. Remember Aaron's two sons who are up on the mountain, Nadab and Abihu? Well, as they start their priestly service, they got a little creative. And Leviticus 10 says, Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. These two young men had enjoyed the invitation of a lifetime. They had seen God. They had eaten in his presence. And less than a few months later, they treat his holy things in a careless, irreverent manner, and they die for it. They claimed that they would do all that the book had said, and yet they altered what was in it, and they ignored God's clear instructions. Okay, that's unfortunate. But at least the others were forever changed, right? By seeing the Lord, they couldn't be the same. Nope. In verse 14 of our text, Moses leaves Aaron and another guy in charge when he goes back up the mountain. And then comes chapter 32, where the people get idolatrous and... They make Aaron produce for them a golden calf. Dude, Aaron, you just saw God. You saw enough to know that he's not a calf. And yet down off the mountain, you're suddenly more afraid of people 
than you are of God in his holiness. And there's the 70 elders. If you read the book of Numbers, they fail time and again in keeping the people from false worship and rebellion. And even Moses, the special prophet, the one who could go further in the presence of the Lord than anyone else, even he, at the critical moment, fails to honor God as holy, and he's kept from entering the promised land because of it. Why is a covenant between God and his people not working? They are unable to keep their promises to obey the law. Sacrifices have to keep being repeated because the blood of animals can never really be a permanent solution for the sins of people. And ultimately, this solution is short-lived because the Old Covenant was always meant to point forward and to prepare the people of God for a new covenant. Jeremiah prophesied that with the covenant to come, the Lord would put his laws within his people. He would write them on their hearts, and they would be taught directly by him. And he would forgive their iniquity. He would remember their sins no more. Ezekiel also spoke about this coming new covenant. He said it would be an everlasting covenant of peace, and God would make his dwelling with humanity forevermore. And we know that at the fullness of time, God descended again, not in fire on a mountain, but in weakness, in a baby. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. No one has ever seen God, the one and only Son, who is himself God and is at the Father's side. He has made him known. And actually, Jesus did speak down from a mountain. He gave a sermon there that unpacked the true meaning of the law of Moses, and he emphasized that the pure in heart, they would see God. Jesus is called the word in the gospel of John because ultimately a commitment to hear and to obey all that God has written is a commitment to receive the embodiment of his message, Jesus Christ. And though Jesus' ministry, um, in his ministry, the book was, it was more than read to the people. It was taught to the people with great wisdom and power, but it was also lived out for the people in the person of Jesus And monuments of a new covenant were given. Not 12 pillars related to the 12 tribes of Israel, but there were 12 apostles who would represent the fuller people of God that were being formed. And there was sacrificial blood. The very center of what Jesus came to do was to offer himself as innocent life placed between us and the holiness of God. And there was bread, a meal to seal the covenant. At the Last Supper, when Jesus said, This bread is my body, and this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. He was saying two things. He was saying, first, I'm the greater Moses, who is bringing about the final solution for humanity to dwell with God. And he was also saying, as the host of the meal, you, just like the elders of Israel on Mount Sinai, have now shared a meal in the very presence of God. Now, if you don't know this morning, if you're counted among the people of God, then this is the main thing I want you to take away from everything I'm saying, that Jesus is fully God and fully man. He's the one to whom all the prophets are pointing. And to know him and to belong to him is to see God, is to be safe in God's presence. So though we shouldn't be able to approach a holy God, we are chosen to be made holy by the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. 
That innocent life is interposed between us and God. His righteousness is credited as ours. And in this new covenant, his Holy Spirit is making that righteousness to be truly lived out in us. So that's our position right now. That's our reality, even though we don't yet see the fullness of it. We're in this time between the two comings of Christ. And just like Moses went back up the mountain to receive further instructions, actually we'll see that most of them were about the tabernacle and the priesthood. Um, in the same way, Jesus went to prepare a place for us. There's so much that's been promised to us, that's been won for us, but we're in a time of waiting where it's, it's like those 40 days and 40 nights The time is still in the future. The prophet Isaiah said this, On the mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, well-refined, and he will swallow up on this mount the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. So that's where this is all going. This is uh, th- these mountain of the Lord realities that we see for us here in Exodus. They are expanding and they will fill the whole of existence when heaven joins earth. And the covenant feast then won't be just for a select few who then are free to squander the invitation of a lifetime and and who fail to let it transform them. Instead, it's going to be our forever reality. And when we see him, we will be like him, or we will see him as he is. And Revelation says they will see his face. The Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. But what does that mean for us in the meantime? We don't fear seeing him as the Israelites had to. Instead, Jesus told us to come and see, and we're on this trajectory of being made holy precisely by seeing him. But how? How do we see God? We can't just go up on a mountain. We can't share a meal with Jesus like his disciples did. But that doesn't mean that we don't share the same new covenant reality. In 1 John, one of Jesus' closest disciples writes, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes. This is John talking about Jesus. That which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. So John sees the joy that the, the first disciples had. He sees that as just the start. And as they share what they saw through the written word, that joy becomes ours as well. It becomes ours in this room. It's ours to share with John and all Christians of all time. We are in fellowship together with them and with the Father and the Son. Now, we may not have seen God incarnate like John did, but through the book of the New Covenant, we see him with our souls, and we're invited in. Hebrews 10 says, Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. There's that imagery again. It's not your clothes and your faces getting blood sprinkled on them thankfully. It's your heart that has been sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. So draw near to God. 
How do we do that? Of course, we can meet him in his word. We can approach him in prayer anytime, but an essential component of a life that draws near to God is emphasized just a verse later in Hebrews 10. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Don't miss this. It's right after Hebrews 10 is unpacking Jesus as the final sacrifice, Jesus and the nature of the new covenant, and then it goes right into let us not neglect to meet together. Our gatherings are where the new covenant is unpacked and remembered. Yes, the covenant is complete and God has provided all we need, but it has to be embraced through faith. And if Nadab, Abihu, Aaron, and Moses show us anything, it's that we desperately need reminders. We live in a culture and a time when it's logistically easier than ever before to get ourselves to church. You just hop in a car, a few minutes later you're there. We also live in the culture where it is easiest to excuse ourselves from the need. Christians in other generations, Christians in other parts of the world today, they would be horrified to see how little we prioritize the weekly gathering. Oh, I've just got this thing. Oh, I need to see my family on Sunday again. Oh, I just had a bad week. Oh, I was out super late with friends. So why wouldn't we come exhausted, broken, bring our messy selves to the gathering where God meets with his people, blesses them with rich food, where we present our whole selves just as we are for him to work in and through just as he pleases. Are we playing at this covenant thing? Or do we want to see God? Do we believe that his presence is in our midst and is our greatest treasure or do we treat it like an add-on? Please, I'm not harping on this because I somehow personally need you here. I'm fine. I can get up and and preach to a few people. Uh, That's not the question. The question is the health of your soul. And what I want you to see from this text is that what we do here each week is a covenant renewal ceremony. Bible scholar Michael Horton puts it this way. He says, whenever we gather for public worship, it's because we have been summoned. Just like in Exodus 24. That's what the Greek word for church means, the called out ones. So Horton says, it is not a voluntary society of those whose chief concern is to share or to build community or to have moral instruction for their children and so forth. Rather, it is a society of those who have been called, chosen, redeemed, justified, are being sanctified until one day they will finally be glorified in heaven. We gather each Lord's Day not merely out of habit, social custom, or felt needs, but because God has chosen this weekly festival as a foretaste of the everlasting Sabbath day that will be enjoyed fully at the marriage supper of the Lamb. That is why we gather. Do you have time or convenience for a covenant celebration with this God who has summoned you? Please hear me rightly. We're not saved by our church attendance but neither are we saved by neglecting the regular sources of grace that God gives us to help us persevere. I don't think we're fully perceiving the beauty and the purpose and the power that are at work in our worship meetings. In our gatherings, we hear the call from God to come near for worship, just like they did. We're confronted by the demands of his law, just like they were, and we're reminded in desperately needed ways of where we fall short. 
but we're not left in despair because we are then reoriented again into a position of trusting in the sacrificial blood. The cross of Christ is embraced again as we hear the words of the book proclaimed to us. And in every sermon and across our whole order of service, hopefully in many ways, you are hearing verse 8. Behold the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. And then through our songs, through our confessions, through our prayers, we respond. We commit ourselves to all the words that the Lord has spoken. And through our thanksgiving and our encouragement of one another, we raise monuments to this covenant. Not physical pillars, but just like we sing, Here I Raise My Ebenezer, our life together creates stones of remembrance of the Lord's faithfulness. We declare together that this far, by his help, we've come. And there's the covenant meal. Now really the whole gathering is a feasting in God's presence, but we close with the Lord's Supper being spiritually nourished by the remembrance of his body given for us and his blood of the covenant poured out for the forgiveness of our sins. So do you see how our whole worship gathering from start to finish is a purposeful renewal of our covenant, a celebration with book, blood, and bread that we are welcomed into the presence of God? Do we not have a sense of expectation for the good that will do us? Every week when we together, in a sense, go up the mountain together to see the Holy One and to feast in his presence. I've heard some comments lately, some, some are disappointed. Like, you know, after 12 years, I really thought our church would be further along or we'd have more momentum. Some comments aren't even discouraged. They're more hopeful. Like, wouldn't it be great if we gained momentum and there was this fresh excitement across the church or we were more focused or active in different ways? And to that I say, yes. That's my prayer every day. But the thing is, we're not going to have more momentum as a church until we have momentum as individuals about the ways God has called us to worship him. And we aren't going to have more momentum about worshiping God as he's called us to, about the way he wants his covenant to play out in community. We won't be excited about that until we want him more, until we want to see him. Does that matter to you? Or do you just want the community piece? This isn't a pottery club at the YMCA. If seeing God doesn't individually matter to you, and if we don't have a collection of individuals who want to see God, then there's not going to be fresh momentum in this covenant community. But if that is your desire, he's already provided the way, and he's invited us up. This eternal covenant with the faithful God is the invitation of a lifetime. Will you, day by day, week by week, feast in his presence together with your brothers and sisters, meditating on the book, contemplating the blood, sharing the bread? If so, then the eyes of your soul will increasingly see the author of life, the giver of all good, and you will have joy in that scene until the day comes when you will truly see him face to face. So Lord, we want to thank you for the new covenant. We want to thank you for the blood of Jesus. We ask that you would give us grace to see it rightly, to see our need for it, not, not one time, to see our continual need to understand this sacrifice, to meditate on it together, 
to celebrate it with brothers and sisters, to set up monuments, to feast together. Lord, forgive us for how too often we fix our gaze on anything but you. We say we want to see you, but we look anywhere but where you have said you'll be. So God, we pray that you do a work in our midst where our actions and our priorities would fall in line with the desire to see you. God, we want to enjoy you. And we thank you that that's what you want for us too. Amen.